to the book of John. Even though we're in a series on Ephesians, we are going to John because we can this morning. Now, if you need a Bible, let one of our highly trained uh, Bible pastor outers know, and they will get you one of these blue ones. And believe me, you want a blue one. You want a blue one. This man right here wants a blue one. I can tell. His guns are calling out for a blue Bible right here. Just the guns. They just say, I need to flex them around a blue Bible. No one's helping me. Randy, toss one over here. It's the Word of God, so toss it gently. Sharper than any double-edged sword. Okay. Now listen. Who's new to our community today? Anybody first time? Oh my goodness. Okay, well we're normally way more dressed up. So I want to let you know, my robe was at the dry cleaners. And um, uh, no, actually, usually I'm shirtless, which is kind of the opposite extreme. And that's why there are so many single ladies. Um, just all of that was kidding. Now, we are really glad that you are with us. We've been studying the book of Ephesians. And uh, next week, we're going to come across a verse that says, uh, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're new to church, you've probably heard the phrase Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. In the church, there's a huge amount of disagreement over what exactly the Spirit does and who exactly the Spirit is. So whenever you mention the phrase, the Holy Spirit in church, some people break out in hives, other people want to start dancing in the aisles, and then there's a whole crew of us in the middle that go, I don't, I'm not sure where I stand. So before we get to a passage next week, okay, listen to me on this, before we get to a passage next week that's really, really important, I wanted to do some background out of Ephesians that, that literally is just like Holy Spirit 101 kind of stuff. And I wanted to do that to prepare us for what we're going to look at next week. So my goal in this message is for you to walk away completely dissatisfied with how you live the Christian life. Okay, I, Literally, if you leave after half an hour of me yapping and you're still awake, which is not, you know, that's not for sure. If you're still awake, okay, brothers and sisters... I know that wasn't very funny, but you can at least look amused. Just mildly amused. Guns, how we doing? Okay. At the end of this half hour, I want you to be irritated and frustrated and irrigated, um, agitated. I want you to be totally discontent uh, with how you're living the Christian life and... I would love for you to go, well, how do we actually do this? Because that just guarantees you'll come back next week when we answer that question. So this is totally, totally a sales job right now. John chapter 14. Jesus has good news and bad news for his band of followers. Bad news, I'm dying, I'm being betrayed, I'll be tortured, I'll be crucified, and then I'm actually going to leave and ascend to heaven to be with my Father. That qualifies as bad news, would you agree? Good news, he says, uh, John chapter 14, verse 11. Believe me, when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of my miracles, the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the things I have been doing. Now, what's Jesus been doing? Raising dead people back to life? Walking on water? Feeding thousands of people from like a little bit of fish and bread? Right? I mean, Jesus has been doing Jesus' stuff for about three years. And then he looks 
at this little band of Galilean peasants, and he says with a straight face, I tell you the truth, you will be doing the same things I've been doing. Now, the fact that you're not all just like going, that's crazy, shows how much 2,000 years of church history have hurt us, because a lot of us know that Jesus said these things, and my question is, well, if Jesus actually told his followers they would be doing the things he did, then where are they? Where are the things that he did? Because it seems like Jesus wasn't real mediocre. He wasn't real lukewarm. It seems like he was pretty full of zeal and power and might to see his father's kingdom expand. And I'm full of mediocrity. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, I think money would be great and success would be really cool. And, and, and you know, I'm just kind of after the things that this world has to offer. Jesus looks at this band of disciples. And you have to understand These guys weren't religious, like the religious elite of Israel. I mean, these were people, if you've read the gospel accounts, and these are the same people that Jesus looks at and he says, why are you guys so slow? Are you still so dull? Why do you have such little faith? These are the people that will betray him and deny him and abandon him. Well done. That was very sly. I didn't even notice. Nate, how we doing? Okay, eight-year-old Nate's up there in the sound booth, ladies and gentlemen. He's my boy. Now, here's the thing. We're not quite sure what he's doing up there. <laughs> so, what? I don't know what you're saying, son, but I love you and I'm very proud of you. Okay, keep yelling at me. So, these are people who have denied Jesus, who will abandon Jesus, and, and he looks at them, and please, please try to get rid of the fact that you've heard this before. He looks at them and says to them, you will be doing the same things I've been doing. In other words, I'm going to ascend to heaven to be with my Father, and not one ounce of my work will cease, because you'll do it. I mean, you have to get how ridiculous. This was, I mean, these were misfits and outcasts, uneducated men. Jesus looks at them and says, you're going to be doing the same things. And and in fact, if that's not ridiculous enough, he says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Now, greater doesn't mean more important. None of them are going to die for the sins of the world. But it means greater in scope. Peter, a dude that's going to deny Jesus 24 hours from this conversation, 40 days later, is going to preach a sermon and 3,000 people are going to come to Jesus. I mean, there now was going to be the presence of Christ in his followers throughout the earth. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, was just localized in this 30-mile radius around Galilee. And so he looks at his followers with a straight face and says, you're going to be doing the same stuff I've been doing. And in fact, your impact will be greater and larger in scope. Now this is crazy. How will it happen? Verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And notice Spirit is capitalized. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is saying something really significant here. I want you to look at two words. The first word, I will ask the Father and he will give you another. There are two different words for another in Greek. 
just in case you're fascinated by this stuff. There is a word that means another of the same kind, and then there's a word that means another of a different kind. Jesus is saying, he's using the word that means another of the same kind. In other words, this is why this is so important. Jesus is saying is, whatever I've been to you guys, I'm sending you another one of me. And the word he uses is the word counselor. Some translations have advocate or strengthener. It's the word parakletos. And it literally means if you were in a courtroom setting and somebody came along as a legal advocate for you, that was a parakletos. That was somebody who, would, who had your back, who was arguing your case. Jesus has called this in 1 John. And so Jesus looks at this band of followers and says, hey, just so you know, you're going to actually be doing the things that I've been doing. The reason why? Because I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to send you another one of me. What I've been to you, the Spirit will be to you. Now do you see what a big deal that is? Jesus has been localized in his flesh and blood body. Now he's saying, my spirit will come and not only live among you, but live in you, and you will actually be doing the things I've been doing. Then he says this, uh, second part of verse 17. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. What pronoun was emphasized? by yours truly during the reading of that sentence? Him. Now, the reason that's important is because Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as a person. Don't get hung up on the masculine pronoun he uses. Just get hung up on the fact that it's a pronoun he uses. In the Old Testament, I thought the Holy Spirit was like Jedi power or something, right? So you read like Samson, the Holy Spirit came on Samson and he like, killed a thousand donkeys or something or pushed down the temple. I mean, just did crazy stuff. And so for me, whenever I'd read about the Holy Spirit, I'd think, okay, cool, that's kind of like Jedi power, right? You, you have it, it comes on you and you use that power. It's like Jesus' superpower or something. What Jesus does is he says, no, no, no. I'm sending you another one of me. What am I? I'm a person. What's the Holy Spirit? A person. The Holy Spirit's an Not an it, but a him. And the reason that matters is because when you hear God the Father, that's a very relational image because we are fathers. And you hear God the Son, that's a relational image. But then you hear like Holy Ghost? What's that? I mean, that, that kind of, that's not exactly a relational something, right? I don't have a lot of relationship with ghosts, and so I'm not quite sure what that means. And so it's very significant that Jesus refers to the Spirit as a him. That you now have a relationship with a person. And it's the person of Jesus through his spirit. It's the reason we can say that Jesus actually lives in you. It's because his spirit now has universalized his presence in ways it wasn't universal when he was walking on the earth. Now, are you tracking with me here, brothers and sisters? Kinda? Yeah, that wasn't real convincing. (laughs) He says... I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. Now, one of the most outlandish things that Jesus says, is he says, you will know him, for he lives with you and will be what? In you. Now, men and women, who is it we're talking about? We're talking about 
God. He was called Yahweh in the Old Testament. That was his Old Testament covenant name was Yahweh. Yahweh first met Israel officially on a mountaintop, and the mountain, the top of the mountain, was full of lightning and thunder and smoke and fire. It was totally terrifying. In fact, the, God wanted to talk to all the people. The people went, no, 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 no. Moses, you go, you go talk to him, and then Moses will tell us what you said. Completely ridiculous. Where would a good Jewish man or woman believe that God lived during the time this was written? In something called the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was amazing. It was massive. And it was incredibly intimidating. Because to get to the dwelling, the throne room, the dwelling place of God, you actually had to go through several courts. If you were not Jewish, you would, could go to the outer court and offer a sacrifice. If you were a Jewish woman, you could pass the outer court and go to the court of women and offer a sacrifice. But you couldn't get any closer. If you were a Jewish man, you could pass the first two courts and go to the court of Israel and offer a sacrifice. If you were of a certain tribe, the priesthood, then you could pass the Gentile court, you could pass the court of women and the court of men and offer sacrifice in something called the holy place. But only one dude, one day a year, could go into something called the most holy place. And it was so terrifying, he had to perform over a hundred different purification rituals before he would go in there. And some Jewish folks tell us that they would tie a rope around his ankle in case he offered the sacrifices inappropriately and died. So when Jesus looks at this band of outcasts and misfits and says that that God now lives in you. This has to be top three on the most ridiculous things Jesus ever said. There's no way. How? And so he looks at them right before he departs. And he says, good news and bad news. Bad news, I'm leaving. Good news, it's actually for your good that I leave. Because you will actually do the same things I've been doing. Now that just absolutely and utterly blows my mind. But it also raises the question, how come I'm not doing the same things he was doing? Like, where's all of that? Or have we so settled for mediocrity that that's just what we call normal anymore? I mean, suppose, suppose you didn't have, oh, she's doing great. You don't have to take her. She, is she hungry? Probably, okay, can't help with that. What was I saying? What? Mediocrity. Well, that's, yeah, that summarizes a whole lot of me. Um, talk about John. Oh, suppose. See, just like a steel trap up there. Suppose all you had, you didn't have 2,000 years of church history. You didn't have any of the crazy stuff you see on TV. Suppose you didn't have any of that and you were on a desert island and all you had was the Bible. And suppose you just read this verse, this, this set of verses. Would you not come to the conclusion that your life should be radically different because the Spirit of the living God dwells in you? Isn't that what you naturally conclude? I mean, for Jesus to say, it's actually good that I'm leaving because you'll do the same stuff I do. I mean, if that's all you had 
were these English sentences, you would naturally come to the conclusion, oh my goodness, this would be amazing. There's no, I mean, wow. And yet, for so many of us, this doesn't even come close to describe the way we actually live. Go, if you would, to the book of uh, Galatians. No, go to the book of Acts. Steel trap. Flip a couple pages over and don't laugh when I mess it up. Don't laugh at me. It's hurtful. I'm a very tender, I'm a tender sprout. Go to Acts chapter 1. Now, Acts is written, guns, how we doing? Acts is written by a man named Luke. Luke wrote one other book called Luke. (laughs) It was an account of the life of Jesus. He wrote part two, and they're both written to a guy named Theophilus. He's written part two, and this is how he begins part two. So it's Acts chapter one, verse one. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus, what? Began to do and to teach. What's the implication? This book is going to be about what Jesus continues to do and to teach. Now the problem with that is that Jesus gets zapped up into heaven seven verses in. So how does Jesus continue to do and to teach throughout the rest of the book of Acts? He does it through the presence of His Spirit now in His followers. And guys, you have to understand, when the book of Luke ends, these dudes have been hiding after Jesus was crucified. Their leader denied Jesus publicly. The girls were the ones that actually saw that the tomb was empty, and they go tell the guys who are in hiding that the tomb is empty. They go, they see this Jesus, but they're still slow of faith. And Matthew, Matthew ends by saying, they've seen the risen Jesus, but there are some who still doubt. I mean, they're the same people. But then the book of Acts opens. And Jesus says, don't go anywhere until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then, only eight or nine verses in, this band of faithless, fearful disciples gets transformed into this revolutionary movement that within a couple of hundred years will radically change the face of the world. And the only difference between then and now is the presence of the Spirit of God in their lives. I mean, these guys turn from betrayers and deniers into people who would be flogged or whipped within an inch of their lives. And then, when they would be warned by the religious leaders not to say anything about this Jesus, they'd say, well, we can't help talk about what we've seen and heard. And then they go back home and they pray for more boldness. Okay? I mean, when I've just been flogged, that's not what I'm praying for. I'm not praying that God would make me more bold at that point. I mean, this is how incredible this crew was. They were utterly unstoppable. Anytime the religious leadership or the political leadership would try to stamp them out, it just spread the infection that much faster. Anytime persecution would break out against this early church, it just meant... That literally, people would be now going to the ends of the earth talking about this Jesus. In the book of Acts, later in the book of Acts, they look at Paul and they say, this, whole, this man has turned the whole world upside down with his teaching. 
These are the same dudes earlier in the story who were clueless. And the only thing that happened is that they received the spirit of this Jesus. And this church was just unstoppable. Is the church in America unstoppable? (laughs) Oh no, we're quite stoppable. Take away the free coffee. Or the donuts. Or the comfy seats, except for the folks in the gray seats. They're already in non-comfy seats. I mean, do you know what shames me? So I, I had a conversation with a nice young lady, and, and I'm just using her to illustrate this point that is in all of our hearts. But she says, you know, I really like the music in my other church better. And she says that like four or five times. But I like the teaching here better than the teaching in the other church. And I'm very gracious, because I'm a very gracious guy. But you know what I really wanted to say? So I was faking graciousness, in other words. You know what I really wanted to say? And I'm, this is, I'm guilty too, so I'm not just... I wanted to say, do you realize there are people walking dozens of miles today for the privilege of singing and dancing in praise to this Jesus? Do you realize there are people being tortured and their families are being tortured because of allegiance to this Jesus? I don't care what you like. It's not for you that we do this. So go ahead and shop. It matters not to me. I do know that Jesus is doing such amazing work beyond the doors of our churches and the boundaries of our country among people who simply have nothing else They don't have childcare or air conditioning or nice cars or 17 Bibles. They don't have radio programming or seminaries. If you want to see see Jesus do some of his best stuff, go to people who have nothing. Then you'll see why the church is unstoppable. The stoppable church is the unpersecuted church, the lazy church. The church that decides to split over every meaningless quabble. The church that is so full of luxury that it can now shop based on consumer preference. Is it any wonder why the church is so anemic in America? It's not. We've made consumer king, not Jesus. And guess who leads that parade? I do. I mean, I'm speaking to me. It's not just her. I'm a shopper at heart. But when I read the book of Acts, I hate it because I can't put it down and say, hey, that's just like us. I mean, all you got to do is change a service time or the main teacher leaves or whatever. And we're worried things are falling apart. Either Jesus is head of his church or not. If he is, it don't matter what kind of music you like. And if he's not a part of the church, then you can have the coolest music in the world and it won't make any difference. I mean, can we agree, brothers and sisters? Even if you're new to this whole thing, I know this much about you. You don't want to be a part of something that's explainable. You don't want to give your life to something that just can be explained in terms of social dynamics or human personality. We all hunger to be part of something transcendent and supernatural. That's why so many of us love the New Age movement. So many of us are fascinated by ghosts. 
Some of us look to the stars for our futures. I mean, we can't help it. And so when I read about this Jesus and what his earliest followers were like, they were just as flawed as you and I. They were just as screwed up. They were just as as inconsistent and as faithless. And yet, they grabbed hold with such passion and tenacity. And they were not embarrassed to be named among the followers of this Jesus. Go to Galatians chapter 5. The goal, remember, is to be dissatisfied. Are we dissatisfied? Not with the sermon, but with the... Okay. (laughs) Nate, how we doing? (laughs) So, another guy I hate is named Francis Chan. And I can't stand him. Because God really uses him. And he's skinnier than I am. And he wrote a book on the Holy Spirit called The Forgotten God. And he uses this wonderful illustration that I'm now stealing. I play basketball, which is a true thing. I'm not stealing that. And the word play is a little loose. I run up and down a court very slowly. Usually, by the time I'm on offense, they've already hit the shot. By the time I'm on defense, they've already hit the shot. So I actually just run like from foul foul line to foul line, just back and forth like this. But suppose I play with the same dudes, and suppose they get an email from me one day, and they say, and I say to them, I have been, I've had a life-changing supernatural encounter with the spirit of Kobe Bryant. The same spirit that gives Kobe Bryant talent to win scoring titles and championships, that same spirit now lives in me. And suppose, I say, I not only have the spirit in me, I have an old basketball nature and a new basketball nature. So I'm putting off anything that belongs to the old basketball nature and putting on whatever belongs to the new basketball nature. And suppose the goal of the Kobe Bryant spirit is to make me like Kobe. And then suppose, a couple of weeks after the email goes out, I play with that same crew. And though my basketball talents are not unsubstantial, insubstantial, I still play the exact same way. What conclusion would my friends draw about my life-changing encounter with the spirit of Kobe Bryant? I'm an idiot, is what they would say, right? We, the church, claim to have life-changing encounters with the spirit of Jesus. We, the church, say the same spirit that allowed Jesus to resist temptation and to rise from the dead and to perform miracles. That same Spirit lives in us. And the goal of that Spirit is to make us like Jesus. And when a disbelieving world sees that many of our actions actually contradict the very Jesus we say we're filled with, they draw the same conclusion my basketball friends would draw. You're crazy. Paul actually assumes that the people of Jesus begin to look like Jesus. He says, I know it's shocking. He says in verse 22, the byproduct of this Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and forbearance, which I like patience better. 
because my preference really matters. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So, Paul says, if you walk by the Spirit and you keep in step with the Spirit, this is what the Spirit does. And, and keep that up there for a second. Do you see those words? Okay, we've so cheesified the fruit of the Spirit. Like, there's fruit of the Spirit potpourri that I've seen in Christian bookstores. What? We're idiots. We are idiots. Oh my goodness. But do you understand what that list represents? That is the personality profile of Jesus of Nazareth. If he had a Myers-Briggs test, if he had a strength finder test, this is, he'd be off the charts. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is what Jesus is like. So guess what he's trying to do in you? Make you like him. When was the last time anyone was amazed at your self-control? When was the last time anyone was amazed at your peace? Or your gentleness? Or your kindness? If you're like me, I immediately go to, yeah, well, we all fall short. We're all falling. We're all in process. We're all on a journey. And that's true. But progress would be nice. What do people think when we tell them we've had a life-changing encounter with Jesus and His Spirit, and then they see not one speck of difference in how we live? Why is the church in America so anemic? The goal is dissatisfaction, but I do want to not leave us right there, because I think there are Soils, to use a metaphor, the fruit that actually foster the spirit life in us. And we don't have time to do these justice. A more fuller deal comes next week. But I want to give you three soils that actually foster the work of the spirit. I can tell you're dazzled and hopeful. Soil number one. This is our least favorite. Obedience. What did Jesus say right before He talks about giving the Spirit. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And if you go on to read John 14, he says that a whole bunch of times. Now, your obedience to Jesus is not a salvation issue. In other words, you don't have to be perfect. You can't earn it or deserve it. Right? Jesus says yes to the worst of us simply as an act of grace. But your obedience to Him does affect your intimacy with Him, your availability to be used by Him, and His willingness to trust you with His glory. In the book of Ephesians, flip over there real quick. You're right there. Flip over a couple of pages to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're here and you're bored out of your mind, be thankful you're not in the front row where you've got to pretend to not be. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4. They're laughing very heartily because we, they've just been exposed. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Paul's talking about all kinds of sin. And what's he say? Do not what? Grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, guys, Holy Spirit's a person, Correct? Of all the ways to describe how sin affects God, 
He could have said, okay, the Holy Spirit gets ticked off when you violate the sense of God righteousness, or the Holy Spirit is offended when you violate his holiness. But what's Paul say? He's grieved. How many of you are parents? And when your children disobey, of course there's an offense. But there's a grieving when you see your children make incredibly destructive decisions. There's a grieving that takes place. Of all the ways to describe the intimacy with which the Spirit of God relates to us, do not grieve the Spirit. So I'll have people say, man, I want more of Jesus. I want to see Him do more. I want to see Him act more. And I want to see more of Him in me. And then, they, and then you find out, oh, well, they're looking at porn every day. Or they're sleeping around. Or they're greedy and prideful. May I gently suggest there is a relationship between <laughs> our grieving the Spirit and not seeing the Spirit do incredible things in us and through us. May I gently suggest that. That grace is a gift, but you have a part to play in the progression you make to godliness. That the Spirit of Jesus isn't going to wait around And I shouldn't say it this way. Let me rephrase. The Spirit of Jesus does not force Himself on us. The Spirit of Jesus won't just override us if we're sitting there being passive. We have a part to play in this whole thing. And so literally, Paul speaking of sin, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. So, how do you grow in spirit life? Let's just try doing what Jesus says. Now, are you going to do that perfectly? Nope, this is not an issue of perfection. Hallelujah. It is an issue of your heart. If you're somebody who says, ah, you know, I think I know better on this one, and I'm just going to consistently live in disobedience, that's, that heart is not a heart that's going to grow in intimacy with God. That's just true. But a heart that's broken and struggling and working and partnering, that's a heart that will grow. You have a part to play in this. Not a salvation issue. It's an intimacy issue. It's a usefulness issue. Second, posture or soil. Risk. Risk. You ever have that voice in your head that says, man, you really should go and say something nice to that person. Or you really should forgive that person. Or... You know, you were kind of mean back there. You should go apologize. You ever have that voice? Okay, if you're a disciple, that's not just your conscience speaking. That's the, that's the Spirit of God in you. If it's condemning, if it's shaming, that's not the Spirit of God. Okay? That's something else. But what the Spirit of God does in me is say, Really? 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 So Jesus is going to talk that nasty? Sure. I mean, there's just this conviction, and it's, it's not condemning, but it's convicting. And when you feed that and listen to it, what will happen is you will be asked to do things that are increasingly uncomfortable, like apologize and be reconciled and forgive and let go of your rights Serve people who aren't real lovable. Bless people 
who don't want to bless you. But the more you say no to that voice, the less loudly that voice will be in your mind. And what God does, and I don't like God for this. Can I just be honest? God loves to put you in circumstances that are so beyond your own natural abilities that he's the only one that can get credit. He loves doing that. The problem is we don't like risk. We just like the illusion of risk. Right? That's, why we, that's why we like amusement parks. I don't really want to go whitewater rafting. I want to go down the Disney chute of whitewater rafting and just kind of pretend. Right? I mean, we have risk managers for crying out loud. We don't like risk. God loves it when his people step out. Gideon, you've got 33,000 troops. Oh, the other army has 100,000 troops. Gideon, you have too many. So let's boil it down to 300 against 100,000. Oh, no, no, that's just a cute Bible story. God would never do anything like that. And then God looks at Gideon, and Gideon's going, dude, we're dead. 300, really? And what's God say? We're doing it this way just so you'll never think you did it. See, God says, I will not share my glory with another. And so he's looking for people who aren't so proud as to think they were the reason that God does something great. But for us, we're terrified of actually risking to be put in a situation where you're uncomfortable, to actually go to a place where if God doesn't show up, you're done for. I think most of our Christianity is designed to actually keep us from that place. Whereas the real Jesus, the wild and untamed Jesus, he does his best work when you're flying without a net. And he'll surprise you. How do you feed spirit life? Listen to that little voice, even when it calls you to do something you think is embarrassing or uncomfortable. Thirdly, I don't know what time this service is supposed to end. 11.03. Okay, so i got to end it pretty quick. Do you know why I'm excited to open this thing? So we can go back to two services in the morning and we can take our time. Because let me tell you right now, (laughs) I won't waste our time talking about how I wish we had more time. Instead, I will say soil number three, desperation. God looks for people who actually are desperate for him and not just for his gifts. Think about that for a second. I love following Jesus because of what he gives me. Jesus, I'll take a double helping of prosperity. Jesus, I want some health, baby. I want some peace. I want some joy. Jesus will do great things for people who are not interested in the great things that Jesus does, but are interested rather in Jesus himself. That's what he's after. He's after people who think he's the reward for following him. But we want to be dazzled. We want the supernatural, just for the supernatural's sake. Jesus wants people who are interested in him, even if they don't get a thing out of it. People who are actually convinced that he's the reward for following him. Now, I don't know how this sits with you guys. If the words agitated, irritated, frustrated, or maybe grateful it's over kind of come to mind. But I want us to be confronted with this thing, with all of these passages. 
Because they, if you just had a Bible on a desert island, you'd actually come to the conclusion that your relationship to the Holy Spirit of God in you is central to living the Christian life. And there should be radical change going on in your heart and in your mind. And the fact that for so many of us, there's not, begs the question, why? This is all set up for what Paul's going to say next week. Be filled with His Spirit. In English, does it sound like much? In Greek, it's magnificent what he's doing. So we will, we will fire up the PowerPoint next week and we will go into what's happening. But before we do, here's what I want to do. Would you close your eyes for a second? Go ahead and take things off your lap. Big question this morning is simply this. Do you want more? You have all of Jesus, of course. You have all of His Spirit. But are you living in the fullness of the reality of God in your life? And if you're like me, the answer is no. And so we start by just asking a question. Is there any sin that comes to mind that's grieving and hindering God's work in you? And we're not condemning and we're not judging we're not throwing rocks at each other because we're all falling short. But perhaps the place to begin is to say, God, is there something that's consistent? Is there something I'm resisting? Is there something that I'm living in perpetual disobedience with? That God would say, that quenches and grieves the work of my Spirit in you. It's not a salvation issue. You are forgiven. There is no condemnation. This is not a condemnation thing. Is there anything that sits before you that needs to be brought under in submission to the Lordship of Jesus? To just say, yes, I don't want to do this. As you're considering, we just want to sing a song over you that really describes the hunger and the thirst we have to see more of God in our lives.